You're listening to Socialist News and Views with your host, Nick Schillingford. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this episode 36 of Socialist News and Views. In the second half of our show, we have a letter from Emma Goldman written in Stockholm, Sweden in 1922, shortly after Goldman was released from a Bolshevik prison. But first, we start with the news, starting with local news. July 11th is an article on Southside Pride. The article entitled A Happy Ending is written by Stephanie Fox. Linda Taylor, who the article says is known to friends as Miss Linda, had lived in her home in Powderhorn Park for almost 20 years, but then, quote, last January, her life was upended. Her landlord informed her that he was selling the property and she would have to leave the place she called home for nearly two decades, end quote. That is when neighbors started a GoFundMe and signed a petition delivered to the landlord to stop the sale. After much negotiation, the landlord gave supporters until June to raise the money, which they did. On May 31st, Miss Linda was able to close on the house with additional help from Longfellow's Holy Trinity Lutheran Church's Stepping Out in Faith Committee. The article says the win even made international news in the country of Montenegro, in addition to making news across the U.S. Minneapolis police kill black man having an apparent mental health crisis is the title of an article on the Minnesota Spokesman Recorder. The article from July 16th is written by Henry Pan. It says, quote, at around 4.30 a.m. Thursday on the 900 block of 21st Avenue, just north of Franklin Avenue, Minneapolis police officers Aaron Pearson and Zachary Serafine fired shots that killed Tekle Elamu Lance, whose government name is Andrew Tekle Sunberg, end quote. While the article says Sunberg had fired shots at a neighbor that resulted in a long standoff with police, the article quotes a neighbor, Craig Trotter, saying at the time he was shot by police, quote, he didn't have a weapon at the time, he was not a threat, he was taking selfies, end quote. July 13th on socialistalternative.org, Jesse Shusett writes an article called What the Climate Movement Needs to Win, which says over the last year we have seen, quote, climate catastrophes on a greater scale than ever in recorded history, end quote. It includes in the list of these the heat dome in Canada, which it says killed hundreds, German flooding, Philippine typhoons and Greek wildfires, as well as, quote, hurricanes making impact to a degree never seen before in regions they've hardly touched previously, end quote. The article says with leaders doing little to tackle the problem, many concerned citizens across the globe have turned to high-profile stunts, which it says, quote, ultimately do little to pressure world leaders to enact the necessary change, end quote. The article outlines three elements for a successful movement. 
including a clear set of demands that, quote, speak to the needs of working people, end quote. It includes in this things like a Green New Deal with a jobs program and taxing the rich. Militant tactics that put real pressure on leaders is also necessary, it says. Mass action and civil disobedience will be needed, according to the article, but, quote, the most important thing will be that the movement has genuine democratic structures so we can discuss and debate tactics and strategy, end quote. Lastly, it says a clean break from the Democratic Party is also necessary to win key demands. Instead, running independent candidates that can be, quote, held accountable to the program of the movement, end quote. In defense of Marxism on Marxist.com has an article on July 15th by Lada Angatir entitled Climate Catastrophe versus Super Profits, The Real Worries of the Ruling Class. It says that the effects of climate change are already being felt by billions around the globe with flooding, high temps, as well as drought in other areas. It goes on, quote, The burning of fossil fuels is the biggest driving force behind global warming. Reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, say that to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels, the limit set by the Paris Climate Accords, greenhouse gas emissions need to be reduced by 43% by 2030 and reach net zero by 2050, this means completely negating the production of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere resulting from human activity, end quote. While the article states a certain segment of the ruling class is worried about climate change, quote, the system as a whole is driven first and foremost by an insatiable lust for short-term profits, end quote. The war in Ukraine, it says, is being used by imperialist leaders across the globe as an excuse to expand the oil and gas industry, the working class will ultimately be the ones to pay the price unless the big polluting industries are brought under the control of society according to a plan that benefits people and the planet. What is the highest temperature ever recorded in your country? That is the title of an article on Al Jazeera July 18th by Mohammed Haddad. The article starts by focusing on the extreme heat wave that struck Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia this week. Haddad writes, quote, on Friday, the United Kingdom's meteorological office issued its first ever red extreme heat warning for Monday and Tuesday in much of England, including London and Manchester, as temperatures are expected to exceed 40 degrees Celsius, making it the hottest day on record, end quote. That's 104 degrees Fahrenheit. The article then touches on record temperatures elsewhere. Here's a clip of the extreme heat warning being broadcast by the BBC in the UK. This is an announcement by the BBC and Her Majesty's Government. For the first time in the United Kingdom's history, temperatures over 40 Celsius have been detected and are expected to reach even further temperatures across the following days. Citizens of the United Kingdom are advised by the government to stay indoors and limit any travel, including public travel, sporting events, gatherings, or any particular outdoor activities which hinder your health in any way shape or form. These activities could pose a significant health risk to anyone who participates, even if you are fit and healthy. The following information will be beneficial to your safety and well-being. Drink around three bottles of water every day, have cold showers every two days, wear short clothing, open windows and circulate air around your residence, and limit all outdoor activities. Consequently due to the record-breaking temperatures, the government will order a complete shutdown of schools for the final week before students start their six weeks holiday. The Majesty's government are currently having what is called a COBRA meeting. Meaning that this will be declared as a national emergency. 
This alert will be put in place from Sunday the 17th of July to Sunday the 24th of July. Please take care and follow the guidelines. This has been an announcement by the BBC and Her Majesty's government. This message will repeat every two hours. And yet politicians and governments tied to fossil fuels continue to hinder progress towards the necessary goals to save ourselves and the planet. People's World also on July 18th has an article by Mark Grunberg. The article has the title Sanders Jayapal Slam Manchin Sabotage of Progressive Agenda. In addition to opposition from Joe Manchin, who it says is the top recipient of cash from the fossil fuel industry, on corporate tax hikes, the article also says Manchin opposes provisions in recent bills to combat global warming. The article quotes Rep. Pramila Jayapal as saying, quote, Progressives have fought tooth and nail for the president's and the Democratic Party's agenda. Unfortunately, the senator from West Virginia has consistently worked to undermine it, blocking action on a number of priorities from childcare to housing and now climate change, end quote. The article says Sanders ended his comments by promoting the fall election, saying, quote, we need more progressive Democrats who are going to fight for workers, end quote. I also encourage everyone to follow us on SoundCloud and check out our most recent specials, including All Eyes Should Be on Sri Lanka, Let's Declare Independence from the U.S. Capitalist Class, Abortion is Healthcare and a Human Right, as well as Inflation is a Ruling Class Attack. And now we go to a song from Rita Martinson. This song is dedicated to soldiers who refuse to fight in imperialist wars. This is from 1972 and was recorded during one of the FTA, or Fuck the Army, tours during the Vietnam War that Martinson participated in, as did the likes of Jane Fonda, among others. The song is also written by Martinson. Hello. I'd like to sing a song that I wrote about a young black soldier who refused his orders to kill in Vietnam. Uh, he was placed in the stockade and he gave an interview to the press and among his reasons for, for doing this he said that um, he thought the war in Vietnam was a, an American war of aggression he thought it was a racist and genocidal war he said he doubted very much if America could bring equality and democracy to the yellow people of Vietnam when it never brought equality and democracy to the black, brown, red, and yellow people of America. And he thought that um, before we begin to preach and leave our country to spread the word, that we better clean up our own mess at home. And this song is called Soldier We Love You. I read that you took a stand and refused to kill in Vietnam You said no man was your enemy If what he's fighting for is to be free Ghetto streets lead nowhere And ghetto cries fill the air Uncle Sam's in Nam to loot and rob People starve at home cause there's no jobs Oh, ain't it hard to smile sometimes I know it's hard to smile sometimes But soldier, we love you Yeah, soldier, we love you 
Even with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, some socialists still seem to think Russia is a worker's paradise or socialist utopia even today. But the exact moment after the 1917 Russian Revolution, when the revolution no longer represented the aspirations of Russian workers, is a contentious point among many. Trotsky's one-time secretary, Raya Donayevskaya, said in 1941 that the Soviet socialist republics were, quote, state capitalism. But even before that, in 1922, Emma Goldman wrote a letter after her imprisonment in a Bolshevik prison where she drew a clear line between the Bolsheviks, which she called Bolsheviki, and the true spirit of the Russian Revolution. Emma Goldman was born within the Russian Empire but spent much of her time in the U.S. Wikipedia says she, quote, played a pivotal role in the development of anarchist political philosophy in North America and Europe in the first half of the 20th century, end quote. In Anarchism, what it really stands for, Goldman wrote, quote, There is no conflict between the individual and the social interests any more than there is between the heart and the lungs. The one, the receptacle of a precious life essence, the other, the repository of the element that keeps the essence pure and strong. The individual is the heart of society, conserving the essence of social life. Society is the lungs, which are distributing the element to keep the life essence, that is, the individual, pure and strong. The letter we will hear is read by Bobby Aguilera and was obtained from the Duke University Library's repository 
You can find the link in our show notes if you want to follow along while it's read. And now here is Goldman's letter in full after release from prison in Russia. And bear with us, there are a few slight glitches in the audio. Stockholm, January 9th, 1922. Dear comrade, we are out of the great prison, Russia, five weeks. But I still find it most difficult to adjust myself to the outside world. All prisoners who have been confined for a long time feel that way. To be sure, we were in Russia only two years, but the events which crowded in upon me during that period made each day a long, painful time of hope and despair, during which one could not write things one felt or read things one wanted to know. One could only be a mute observer of the greatest tragedy in human history, the slow and torturous death of the Russian Revolution. I hope soon to have gotten hold of myself sufficiently to write about the catastrophe. Since our arrival here, I saw for the first time in many years some copies of Freedom, the file of 1921. I congratulate you on the splendid work you're doing, especially on your stand against the prosecution of our comrades in Russia. I'm enclosing a copy of a statement on the subject. From Riga, we sent a similar article to Rocker. Perhaps you've received a copy of that too. If you have not already published that one, please publish the one enclosed. This statement should silence once and for all the foolish denials of the communists outside Russia of the doings of their holy church. Not that I blame them. I know from personal experience how difficult it is to throw off the hold of the delusion that the Russian Revolution and the Bolsheviki are synonymous. I fought bitterly and desperately many months before I could realize the terrific falsehood foisted upon the world. And I was close enough to see the working of the Jesuit order. So I do not blame the enthusiasts who so strenuously resent my criticism of the Bolsheviki. A lie dies hard. Think of how long the Christian lie has been dying. Let us hope it will not take so long for the lie to die, which confuses the spirit of the Russian Revolution with the state machine, which crushes that spirit. No, I do not blame the sincere enthusiasts who see from afar the glamour of the Russian government, but no words can express my contempt for those who have been in Russia, have had the opportunity to see things as they are, and who either did not want to see, or seeing, continue silent, after they go out of Russia. No wonder the hosts of delegates who swarm into Russia to be royally entertained by the government and at the expense of the Russian people are so hated by the people. They justly see in them the blind dupes of the government who eagerly lap up every official statement as gospel truth. Later, I mean to pay my respects to the men and women who so shamefully betrayed both the workers in Russia and in their own countries. Now I wish to reply to the letter in freedom of the October anarchist prisoners of Russia. I do not know whether he was actually shown, quote, a letter purporting to come direct from the anarchists glorifying in the fact of aiding the counter-revolutionaries in so claiming credit for throwing this particular bomb, end quote. I only know that if he was actually shown such a letter, he was shown a dastardly forgery. The henchmen of the Bolshevik government, the Cheka, 
have and still are shooting people for less than throwing bombs. Is it likely the Cheka would have spared the anarchists who were supposed to have thrown the bomb in 1919 and that it would go on keeping them in prison until Mr. Pollitz and Mr. Tom Mann's arrival two years later? Right here, it is as well to point out that though the bomb was thrown after the most brutal repression on the part of the Bolsheviki, most of our comrades in Moscow and Petrograd came out in strong protest against such methods. Why were Mr. Pollitt and Tom Mann not told of that protest? The comrades in prison at the time of the Congress could certainly not have written a letter glorifying and having helped counter-revolutionaries or taking credit for that particular bomb. Granted, however, that Mr. Pollitt, Tom Mann, etc., were impressed by that, quote, letter, should they not have asked to see the imprisoned men? Even in capitalist countries, it's customary to investigate both sides, to listen to the accused and not only the accusers. Yet here are so-called revolutionists, Mr. Pollitt and Tom Mann, Mann, who has on more than one occasion stood in the dock for his opinions, Mann, the archenemy of the politics and politicians. What do they do? They read a letter purporting to come from the anarchists and are absolutely satisfied as to the guilt of the anarchists. What monstrous outrage! But then Moscow has become the procurer of many so-called revolutionists. Why not Mr. Pollitt and Tom Mann? One might be charitable to Mr. Pollitt's lack of fairness, but not his lack of accuracy. He states that he and others were elected as visiting committee to the anarchists with full power to grant free pardon to all those who promised to refrain from helping the counter-revolutionaries in the future. Some promised and were granted their freedom. Not one word of this is true, except that Tom Mann was one of the committee which never visited any prison. The episode that happened in Moscow during the Red Trade Union Congress was, I believe, reported in some of our European papers. For the benefit of the readers of Freedom, however, I will give a short resume. Our imprisoned comrades, driven to desperation by long imprisonment and starvation, decided upon a hunger strike. The French, Spanish, and Italian anarcho-syndicalists, when informed of the decisions, promised to raise the question at an early session of the Congress. Some, however, suggested that the government might be approached first. Thereupon, a committee was chosen with Tom Mann as one of its members to call upon the little father of the Kremlin. In passing, be it said that Tom Mann had to be shamed into taking a part in the matter. As to Mr. Pollitt, nobody knew of his existence. The committee called on Lenin. It was told that the anarchists would not be released as they were too dangerous, but that they would be given a chance to leave Russia. Should any of them return, he would be shot. The next day, Lenin's statement was substantiated by a letter from the Central Committee of the Communist Party, signed by Trotsky, reiterating what Lenin had said. Naturally, the threat of being shot was omitted in the official letter. Our comrades accepted the offer of deportation. They who had fought and bled for the revolution preferred to become a hazardous of foreign lands to the slow mental and physical death in the communist prisons. 
Thereupon, two comrades, A. Shapiro and Alexander Berkman, were added to the Committee of Foreign Delegates whose duty it was to negotiate with the government about the release and deportation of our comrades. It is interesting to note here that neither the elusive Mr. Pollitt nor Tom Mann showed further interest or concern in the fate of our imprisoned comrades. It's not judicious to show interest in anarchists when one is the guest of the government, especially a communist government. The negotiations went on, and the idea of a public protest at the Congress was abandoned. Fancy then the amazement of everyone concerned when at the 11th hour of the Congress, shortly before its closure, Bukharin, in the name of the Central Committee of the Communist Party, launched into a scurrilous attack upon the anarchists. Naturally, the French, Spanish, and Italian delegates, supported by many others, demanded the chance to reply. That demand was granted to Cyrillet only after every possible political trick on the part of the chairman, Lasovsky, was used to sidetrack the demand. However, the sentiment for fair play was so great that Cyrillet was finally permitted to speak. I wonder why Mr. Pollitt failed to say something about this very interesting incident. It might have thrown some light on the famous letter he was supposed to have seen. Lest your readers think that the government hastened to fulfill its promise of a speedy settlement in the case of our comrades, I wish to say that they were released only at the end of September, and that some of them were dumped upon the tender mercies of European governments only in late November, and that some are still waiting to be deported, while their vacant places in prison were quickly filled with other comrades. Strange, is it not? Even reactionary America does not dare to deport her native sons. The Russian government dares to do such an outrageous thing because the enemies of the Russian Revolution and the friends of the Bolsheviki have confused the whole world about the Russian situation. About myself and my plans, I cannot say much now. I want to write about Russia, if I can find a place where I might enjoy even a modicum of freedom. But with the whole world turned into a huge fortress, one need not hope for much anywhere. Marked Confidential Please send us freedom and anything that may have published during the last few years. I would also like you to send Freedom of 1921 to the following address. Mrs. N. Collis, Alexandrovskaya, 35KV22 Riga. They will get into Russia. Our people there are simply famished for news about the anarchist movement in Europe. Please let me hear from you soon. With kindest regards to all of the comrades, fraternally, Emma Goldman. The music used in that audio letter is by Edgar Varese, a French composer who spent most of his time in the U.S. He founded the International Composers Guild in 1921. He coined the term organized sound to describe his musical aesthetic. That's according to Wikipedia. Those organized sounds from that piece were called Hyperprism from 1922 and Octandre from 1923. That's our episode. Again, please continue to follow us on SoundCloud, and if you like them, share these podcasts with others. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity.
This has been another edition of Socialist News and Views with your host, Nick Schillingford.